Hi, welcome to finally the podcast from Michael Furtick. It's my rare honor and pleasure, a rare honor and pleasure in life to welcome today Martha Minow. Martha Minow is a formidable legal and intellectual giant, and I'm very proud to host her. She is, uh, her, she currently ca carries the title of the 300th anniversary university professor at Harvard. A university professor is a distinguished level of professorship at Harvard. There are, I think, 25 of them only right now at Harvard, and she is one of them. She fills one of those professorships, and she's the immediate past dean of the Harvard Law School. Her scholarship and work are broad and wide-ranging, even among a population of professors who have broad and wide-ranging work. The topics that Professor Minow has covered and continues to cover in her life include genocide, international conflict, forgiveness, importantly, human rights, civil rights, at the beginning of her career after she graduated from Yale Law School, Martha Minow clerked for Justice Thurgood Marshall. She's written also about restorative justice, which is a topic that is on many people's lips today. She has worked and continues to work in the field of access to legal services, especially for the indigent. One of her topics is ethics, which is itself a broad topic, <laughs> but ethics is one of her topics. And um, more recently, perhaps, the First Amendment news, access to the news, and so forth. So we begin by saying, welcome, Martha Minow, and thank you for coming. Oh, thanks, and thanks for that uh, lovely introduction and for this wonderful invitation. Well, I always begin by asking, is there something about the introduction that I gave that was incomplete or you'd like to edit. And by the way, it's not rude or impolite to add or delete or amend. Is there anything, you only got one chance to do it. <laughs> Is there anything you'd like to do to change about the, about the introduction and then we'll move on? Oh, it was very lovely, thank you. Okay. Martha Minow, is the United States still a democracy? Oh boy, <laughs> you, you start with the softball, is that right? Uh, it is uh, definitely on the decline. Uh, the Freedom House, one of the nonprofit organizations that assesses uh, democracies around the world, has for several years in a row marked down the United States. And uh, it's really moving into the democracy in trouble category. What is a democracy? Uh, of course, uh, even by design, the United States has never been a direct democracy. It's a representative democracy. Um, and it has many, many elements in its design that are not democratic. Um, and we're living with those consequences. Just as an example, uh, the Electoral College. Uh, so the selection of the president is not by the actual majority of the population. Uh, we currently have a United States Supreme Court that has a majority that were appointed by presidents who were not elected by a majority of the United States. That's not in contradiction to the design of the Constitution, but it does put in jeopardy the legitimacy, the perceived legitimacy of the institutions. So to be, to be precise for our listeners, some of whom will be au courant with the Constitution and voting and so forth, some, some will not be. Um, the presidents you're referring to received a majority of the Electoral College votes, but they did not receive a majority of the popular votes 
Thank you. Yes. So, so is that what you mean to say? And 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 um, and the Supreme Court majority were nominated by those presidents. Is that right? That's exactly what I mean to say. And the reason that that is uh, the case is that it was a compromise in the design of the Constitution to make sure that the um, upper house, the Senate, and then its parallel uh, representation in the Electoral College um, has two representatives from each state, even tiny, tiny states like Rhode Island or states with very small populations like South Dakota. And uh, that means that they're treated exactly the same as California. Um, and so, yes, it is uh, skewed uh, against the direct popular vote. So on those respects, um, we're not a direct democracy. We were never by design, and now it's even more so a departure from that idea. But even if what, you what take... The, what is the element that's newer, the newer departure? Can you, yes. can you um, amplify that? Because, because I think some of, some of us will say, well, if it was never intended to be a direct democracy, so what's the difference? What is the recent trend that you're, or Freedom House or others are seeing sure. and observing that you want us to understand? No, good question, and I'll just uh, 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 connect it to the point I've just been making, but then add some others on this point about the election of a United States president and appointment of Supreme Court justices. It is more uh, out of sync, as it were, with uh, perceived legitimacy and, I think, even the design of the Constitution by the fact that um, population has shifted dramatically uh, the same design applies to the creation of a state like California, which was never in the original design. And there's just not been an updating. So this um, uh, disjunction between the Electoral College and the popular vote is much greater than it was. Um, so but, which might be to say, for example, a small state in 1789 was not that much smaller than a huge state in 1789, whereas right. Wyoming is so much tinier today than California or perhaps Texas or Florida or something like that, that it, it may make less sense right. by, by, these, by these sort of understandings to have the same type of upper house representation. Is that, is that, that fair that's or not fair. fair? No, I think that's fair. And also we have, uh, since 1789, uh, developed a strange system whereby we have Puerto Rico, we have mm. the District of Columbia, mm. uh, places that have populations comparable to some states and are not given the vote, are not given the ability to uh, affect uh, the electoral process. Mm. Um, and, um, and, and that's different, again, from the original design where it was the original 13 states, each of which were given that kind of power. And it was only later that these mm. kinds of non-enfranchised territories were added during a period of tremendously disturbing uh, racism and oppression during a period mm. of empire. But there are other features that make uh, the democratic status of the United States, I think, really um, in jeopardy. I'm glad you mentioned news. I am preoccupied with news. Um, the news industry is the only private industry that's mentioned in the United States Constitution, and that's not by accident. The framers understood they would never have had a revolution and never have had a, de a democratic possibility 
without uh, news, privately managed uh, printing presses, uh, and so forth. And so the First Amendment, uh, very first uh, modification to the Constitution, protects not only the freedom of speech of individuals, but also of the press. Well, right now, the press is in serious jeopardy of dying in the United States. Um, in jeopardy of dying. In dying, dying. Mm. We have um, literally over a thousand communities that have no news, that mm. have nobody covering what's going on. Um, and locally, meaning they, locally. They, they have syndicated news, but not what's happening at City Hall, what's happening with the City Council, something like that. Precisely. And the research is very clear about this. If you do not have anyone covering what's happening at City Hall, what's happening in a local business, corruption increases, voting goes down, trust goes down. And um, the reason that there is this decline is you know, complicated. It certainly reflects in part the rise of the Internet where scaling requires uh, national, if not beyond, uh, scope, um, and local news no longer can sell ads on any, any kind of uh, na uh, national platform. But it's not just that, because uh, news, news uh, outlets still make a profit. They just don't have double-digit profit. Um, and so there's a purchasing uh, pattern by private equity companies and other investors to get the subscription and um, meantime strip mine uh, the news entities. So they're on their way to death. So even the communities that Just still explain, have- explain a little bit more. What does the strip mining look like without, without, we don't need to know details of private equity technique right. unless you want to share, but what, does, what does it look like and what does the before and after picture look like? Sure, so uh, a going concern um, maybe a group of um, local newspapers that have subscriptions, so there's an income stream. Yeah. Uh, private equity will come and buy them either from a, a, another conglomerate or from uh, increasingly from families. Um, and then to uh, maximize their short-term return, they will reduce the staff, sometimes leaving literally no reporters, um, and uh, calculate uh, a return for a period of time, at which point it's gone, it's over. It's a rundown. It's, they just yeah. calculate the rundown. Okay. Yeah. So, okay, so I'm old enough to remember when I was at the Harvard Law School, uh, and the, uh, at the time it was called the Berkman Center uh, for Internet and Stuff. I don't know if it's still called the Berkman Center for Internet and Stuff, but it was the Berkman Center for Internet and Stuff at the time. And the cool kids there who were professors and cool kids, used to talk and they used to say things like, no, 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 old person. Um, you misunderstand the way media work. You misunderstand the way news works. Uh, there is a thing called citizen journalism that is going to save the day and you're just an old thinking nincompoop type of person. That was the idea. So, I remember so, those conversations. Yes. yes, you remember that. And okay, so good. So I remember. So so you're also old enough to remember those conversations. <laughs> and so the, the what what is the response or what's the experience? What is the wisdom now? Some years later, where were they right? Where were they wishful thinking ish? Where were they wrong? Um, and what have we what have we learned that that indicates we no longer have to ask certain questions because we have now the answer. 
Whereas what are the things that we still might need to get some more data on? So uh, wonderful and timely that you should mention this. It's now called the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society, and it's about to have next week, I think. Yes, it's 25th anniversary. Um, well, congratulations, Mazaltov, we'll say. So, and what, what is... Berkman and Klein, Mazaltov. Yes, exactly. And what is very much on everyone's mind is misinformation and disinformation, which uh -huh. is one of the things that happened to that uh, optimistic... Uh, period uh, of hope, um, because now citizen journalism uh, means, of course, even non-citizen journalism. There can be foreign countries that are generating whatever is the content coming into my feed, uh, and bots, and so forth, mm. um, and no method for verifying, is it a human being? Is it someone who actually lives in my community? Um, and uh, so that's one major uh, development. Another that I've already mentioned is this uh, finance method. Back in those uh, optimistic days, nobody was really thinking about making a lot of money on the Internet. It was mm. all thought to be free. Um, well, the, the method of making money is an ad-driven uh, uh, approach. And uh, as uh, has been described, uh, it's, a, it's surveillance capitalism. It's a method that is based on big data accumulations following the eyeballs of any viewer, uh, any participant. Um, and uh, while I don't pay to get on the internet uh, with money, I pay with my attention. And as several observers have, have pointed out, when you get a product for free, you are the product. So the product is now the user, uh, the human being, uh, whose data uh, is marketed uh, and sold to the next advertiser. And that means that the, there's full employment by the internet, uh, particularly the social media companies, for psychologists who are experts in uh, our lizard brain, in drawing our attention to what uh, scares us, uh, and what uh, actually horrifies us. And that's where these ads and other content are really given every carte blanche to be anything but uh, truthful. So that vision of citizen journalism, very much on the decline. I have been in circles, face-to-face -face circles with people at the Berkman Klein Center saying, where did we go wrong? Uh, particularly around issues of harassment, uh, bullying, uh, cyber stalking. There was a confidence 25 years ago that people's goodwill would out. And instead we have designed new platforms for hate and uh, for misinformation and for abuse. One of the most famous venture capitalists in the world, who's also one of the most successful entrepreneurs on the internet in the world, um, someone I'm guessing you've interacted with, it doesn't matter what his name is, who is known to be also uh, a kind of a righteous person, invests in righteous things, um, I won't say virtuous or virtue signaling, just to invest in like the lefty things and so forth uh, philanthropically and is visible in those types of efforts. Um, says routinely and openly, at least in private communication, 
business communication that he only invests in a company that um, he only invests in companies that trade on the seven deadly sins. If the seven deadly, if if if, if at least one set of the seven deadly sins is implicated by the product, then he will invest. And if not, then he will not invest, which is quite remarkable. So you think this this idea of citizen journalism turned out to be just insufficient, maybe even bunk. That's my word, not yours. I realize that, but it just turned out to be uh, a false future, overly optimistic, rosy and we have to stop imagining that that's going to fill the void of the First Amendment's specifically contemplated press, the only industry that's contemplated by the Internet, by the Constitution, as you pointed out. We have to stop imagining that citizen journalism is going to do the job. Well, the only industry that was protected by the Constitution, I'm sure others were contemplated. I, I, you, we haven't turned to solutions. You know, I, I am a hopeful pessimist. So I do spend time uh, trying to think of what could make a difference. Uh, I'm very involved in the philanthropic efforts. Um, I'm the chair of a large foundation that's currently involved in a big effort to bring together a lot of philanthropic dollars from a lot of different corners of the world to try to address these issues. I do think, you know, that um, the possibilities of uh, putting together nonprofit forms uh, with local news um, to support, yes, literally that citizen journalist down the street um, are there, but it's tricky to figure out who is the real citizen journalism journalist as opposed to who is a bot. But this or, is still institutional. This is still institutional. It needs to come. It's not an organic one by one kind of thing. It, this, that ship has sailed is, is your argument. That is correct. To, Okay, and and let's. You wrote a book. Well, you've written many books, but you wrote a book that's sort of exactly on this this point. Saving the news was published a couple of years ago, and in that book, you contemplated, if I characterize it incorrectly, you'll correct me. You you contemplated the idea of affirmative protection, sort of incumbent upon the federal government to supply certain supports um, to recognize its obligation, as it has in the past, accidentally maybe through the creation of the rails on which the media run and so forth. Um, is that still part of your thinking? And if so, would you like to tell us about it? A little bit about uh, it? Oh, thanks very much. Uh, absolutely. I, I think they're really th uh, the most uh, outrageous thing that I argue in that book is that there is an affirmative obligation. And it's uh, unusual because the United States Constitution is largely understood to be a set of, of prohibitions against government action, its restrictions on the powers of the government, but it was designed by people who'd already failed. Uh, the first draft of the Constitution uh, was called the Articles of Confederation, and it didn't last because there weren't enough powers for an effective government. So it's very much in that spirit that I argue that uh, even though the First Amendment says uh, Congress shall make no law, uh, affecting the freedom of speech. It doesn't mean that, and it has never meant that. Um, mm. and, and then I think there are three kinds of affirmative steps the government can take, uh, and I'm for all three. The first is to actually hold the, the large internet companies responsible, like adult companies, which are currently, it's currently not the case in the United States, unlike in other parts of the world. 
uh, social media companies are exempted from the same kinds of obligations under tort law, under contract law, under any kind of law. Um, uh, done uh, to to spur the creation of new companies while they're now the largest capitalized country, uh, companies in the You're world. You're talking about the Communications Decency Act, Section 230, I think. I am. I am. So that's the prime example. But there are other examples where they're not treated as responsible actors. For example, intellectual property. Um, yeah, so it's a little harder to collect uh, the payments that are due to those who actually uh, have developed copyrighted material. But so we figure that out with radio and television, and we should be able to figure it out with the so internet. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a journalist or a citizen journalist, or I'm an owner of a small newspaper, and someone takes my article, puts it on Facebook, and then it gets shared a million times. Well, suddenly, I have a, a, an opportunity to generate revenue I would never yes. have been able to generate, but all of that revenue goes to Facebook, not to me. Is that the idea? Thousand percent, exactly okay. correct. And, and then that suddenly means Facebook that... says it can do all these things, but suddenly yeah. it cannot figure out how to attribute that to me. Exactly. It's the one thing, the one thing they can't do. Right? The one thing they can't figure that out, and oh, uh, <laughs> they can't and... figure it out. <laughs> Right. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, that breaks the virtuous cycle that has always enabled a for-profit journalism to exist so uh -huh. that there's a return and then there's a reinvestment. And, you know, Facebook does not invest in gathering the news. It just invests in recruiting your and my attention mm. so that we then post uh, the content developed by other people. So that's the first bucket is hold them responsible like ordinary companies. Um, and uh, and I would include in that tax their targeted ads um, So and create a designated fund to support uh, journalism. Uh, a second is to actually protect users, and that's simply to uh, enforce existing laws about uh, uh, fraud and consumer protection and maybe uh, improve them. Um, so here, uh, there are some tricky issues. I don't know the right answers uh, about uh, misinformation, disinformation, what is fraud. We're close to the line where we don't want the government doing anything, deciding what is and isn't uh, a reliable communication. But there are ways to handle that as well, like create an intermediary that is private and isn't the government. And so that needs work. But the third is maybe where I, I'm putting my heart right now, the third bucket, which is amplify the, the, the rails, if you will, the development of reliable sources of information. Uh, public media is one example, uh, but uh, giving uh, uh, tax incentives for nonprofit media is another. Uh, teaching children and even adults about misinformation and how to check the sources of uh, information is a, is a third. So that's where I'm putting a lot of my own uh, energy and effort. Tidbit question, because we might be suffering from the great problem of over-modesty. You said that your idea of affirmative rights that you presented in your book was, uh, you said, most outrageous. Were you just being modest or are you trying to acknowledge that it's sort of a little bit outre for the moment in legal circles, but you still stand behind that idea. I, I do stand behind that idea, okay. and it is outre. <laughs> Great. There is no modesty on the Finally podcast. We encourage you not <laughs> to be modest, Martha Minow. Okay, so, um, fine. So, all right. So, just coming back to this and asking the questions that are differently or more broadly, is a flourishing news something, news service, news industry, industry implies for-profit, 
ecosystem is a flourishing news something a precondition for a successful democracy? I believe it is. I think that uh, flourishing sources of information to hold the powerful accountable, to expose what is going on, uh, to equip voters to know what to vote for. Um, it's not uh, sufficient, but it's a necessary ingredient. But, you know, on the list of why I, why I think the United States is uh, on the, uh, in, in trouble when it comes to democracy, we have to add um, social distrust, polarization, <laughs> uh, lack of a sense that it's a shared enterprise. Um, and have we had that before? Yeah, we've had, we had a civil war, for gosh sakes. But unfortunately, to have that example come to mind is not random. Um, we are divided as a country. Perhaps the only thing we agree upon is that we are divided. And we're divided in our news sources is one major uh, cause and amplifier of that problem. But we're divided uh, about wh who to believe, about what happened in the election of 2020. Uh, we're divided about what music we listen to. We're divided about whether we think that human beings contribute to climate change. Um, there's, there's such a profound split and schism. Um, I actually <laughs> believe that the current media is in trouble uh, so badly that it's telling us all that we're divided more than we really are, but that contributes to this uh, general <laughs> sense of distrust. Um, it's and it's very hard to have a democracy of any sort if you don't have a we. If you don't have a sense that we're in something together, um, that we actually have a project and it's not a war. Uh, that's extremely interesting. One of the, the questions that I guess my friends, peers and I, let's say from the broadly defined Silicon Valley ask is whether the internet and democracy are compatible. And um, some of my friends just don't want to answer that question because it's not a profitable question to ask. Um, but it is uh, very much on my mind, it's on our minds um, for a number of reasons. Some of the reasons you're describing, the destruction of incentives for truthful, sober information is one. Another is sort of the, the, the rate at which the velocity of rumor versus the velocity of sort of rumor correction. I think that sort of people broadly are pretty darn good at discerning what's true over some amount of time. Um, but in the, in the kind of heat of the October surprise, which today could happen 30 minutes before the polls open, um, and the rumor can be not corrected that quickly, yeah. uh, th there, there is some reason to believe that the current mechanisms that were invented hundreds of years ago may not be apt. Um, You're quite okay. right, and the research there is pretty profound that at least up until now, it has been conventional broadcast cable media that is even less able to engage in that correction than the internet in that um, the polarized viewing that I uh, just was mentioning is even more pronounced They're there. also extraordinarily tentative, aren't they? They're extraordinarily tentative. The, the, Absolutely. Yeah, they've, they've really sort of, um, sort of forsaken the responsibility of taking clarity, clear positions. Um, speaking for myself, and you may or may not agree, uh, in the kind of the coronavirus pandemic, never mind Trump and the White House's communications, the, the communications of the CDC and the health establishment, uh, which I trusted at the beginning, um, yeah. 
but which we later came to understand were, were known by them to be fibby <laughs> or stretchy. because less, they, less than they, truthful. Right, yeah. because they felt they were saying something they needed to say because the people could not handle the information if it was presented fully. Um, unfortunately, that gave a lot of ammunition to people who said that we can trust nothing. And I, I, I shocked myself by starting to disbelieve official statements, not from, not from political parties, elected officials, which you can take or, or not, you can take, take, or, take or not as you want to, but from the unelected, from the, from the bureaucrats. And I was affected by that. Were you affected by that or am I speaking only for myself? Oh, my goodness. Uh, so March of 2020, um, I join a uh, online discussion with my local congressperson who brings along a public health person. And I asked a question. Of course, we always remember our own questions more than anything else. But I remember my question. And my question was, how come we're telling being told simultaneously you don't need to wear a mask, and if you have any N95 masks uh, lying around, please bring them to the hospital. I said, I just don't understand that. Uh, and I was told in response by people that I actually know and have some respect for um, simultaneously, well, there are not enough of them to go around, so we want them for the healthcare professionals, and we don't actually believe that ordinary human beings will know how to wear them, wear them correctly. Yeah, that's bad. So yeah. this was bad. Yeah. Um, so, so what you're describing is true, but I also think, unfortunately, it lands close to something else that is a big, big problem, which is mm. science. Science has a different mode than um, many, than many other sources of knowledge. So the tentativeness that you were just describing to, to, uh, to some of the media actually is true of any serious scientist, yeah, including a medical professional. They'll say, I don't know, I could be wrong. This is and, our best working hypothesis today, and we have to revise it in two weeks when we know better. And most people who are not scientists don't understand that and become very frustrated. Therefore, there's developed a new profession, which is science communication, which tries to come up with clearer statements that are more definitive, when by definition, the scientists say, well, we don't know, it could be disproven tomorrow. Again, a March 2020, I went to a meeting uh, led by leaders at Harvard who were among the very first to actually declare there's a global pandemic, we need to <laughs> shut down. <laughs> Um, and we were talking about, you know, what are the things to worry about? And again, I remember my question. My question was, is this virus going to mutate? And a very accomplished scientist said to me, well, we can't worry about that right now. We, and I was thinking, what do you mean we can't worry about that right now? Whatever solution we come up with, we have to take that into account. Hmm. Well, what can I say? Um, okay. Let's switch gears. Let's go back to the beginning um, of Martha Menno, to your parents, um, and particularly, in particular to your father. We don't have to speak only about your father, but um, uh, you and I have spoken about your father a little bit in the past, and of course, your relationship with your father is well known. Uh, his name was Newton Minow. He was the chairman of the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, appointed by, I think, JFK, right, 1961. That's right. That's and right. he was there for a couple of years, uh, and you maintained a very dear and important relationship with him 
a uh, very close relationship with him until he died recently. He died this year in May of 2023 at the very lucky old age of 97, which is a very good pre-indication for you, Martha Minow. Um, and I remember, in fact, I was in your office, and I'm not revealing anything private. I was just, you and I were in an office, in your office meeting, um, and uh, I remember you got a phone call from him, and you very sweetly <laughs> stepped aside, and he's a very old guy at the time, and you took, you took a phone call from him, and I think you, he was commenting on a paper you had written, or you were commenting on a paper he had written or something, but you were still in a kind of a, a collaborative schwung with him, you know, which is cool. So one of, what the reason I'm asking is not idle or sort of, uh, sort of uh, idle interest. Part of what I try to reveal in, a, in this podcast is how did they do it? How did she become great? How did he become great? And you are a great person. Thank you. Um, and often, not always, but often, at least one of the parents, sometimes both, but at least one of the parents was extremely involved in the trajectory. And of course, it's all credit to you. It doesn't take credit away from you at all to, to acknowledge this. And you don't have to talk about this if you don't want to. But was that the case here? Was your father's, your, your very close working relationship with your father, your intellectual relationship with your father, never mind the First Amendment stuff he was involved in uh, early on, um, very famously, um, and the public television stuff he was involved in very, very famously, can you talk about your, will you, are you willing to talk about your relationship with your father and how it impacted you and may, may have continued to impact you later in your life even, later in your career, I mean, um, and, and choices you made and uh, gifts he gave you in that way. Are you willing to talk about this? And if so, what can you share with us? Well, Michael, that's a gift to give me. Uh, this is, uh, of course, a still a period of mourning for me and my family. Yeah. Um, we are so, though, incredibly lucky to have had my, both of my parents for so long. My mother passed away the year before. Um, and uh, they were a team, and they were a phenomenal team. Uh, okay. And for both of them, family was the number one, uh, which is not so unusual maybe for a, a woman of my mother's generation, but very unusual for my uh, a, a man of my father's generation. Mm. They had two fights before they got married. One was whether the children would be bar mitzvahed, um, because my mother came from classic reform and my dad came from an Orthodox family. Uh, and they solved it by having all girls. Um, but, um, and then and at, they, at that time, and at that time, bat mitzvahs were not quite so typical, right? They, so, they were, they it, didn't yeah. exist. Yeah. No, didn't exist. So that the audience may not know that. So let's, let's point that out. It's, you're it, right. It would you're be right. typical today to have a bat mitzvah, but at, at right. the, the generation of Martha Minow, very atypical. Yeah. That's right. So then the other big fight was whether to rent the apartment with the two bedrooms in for my father's parents to come visit or not. Okay. Uh, so when they didn't have much money. So right. uh, very devoted, very devoted to family. My dad gave some speeches when he was in the government that made some news. And one of them, uh, the fa most famous one where he called television a vast wasteland, he uh, flew home where the family was still living in Illinois from Washington, D.C. after the speech oh, wow. in order to go to my sister's uh, brownie which is a, a club uh, the ceremony. Girl Scouts, right? kind the of Girl Scouts, Scouts. the yeah. Junior Girl Scouts, exactly. So Let's actually just talk about that little vignette for a second. Yes. So your father is probably the only chairman of any commission in American history who actually became a celebrity. Yeah. Um, for, he, was, he was only only in the seat for two about and two and a half years. years right? yeah, right. Right. 
but he, he, he stands in front of the broadcasters of America, like the Professional Broadcaster Association. Right. He's the big boss, right? He says, you guys make crap. I encourage you to watch your own crap, and I bet you can't get through a day of it. And TV is a vast wasteland. This is what he says. Yeah. And he then, I think, gets more media coverage than any other federal official, apart from the president of the United States at that including time. Including the president that day, including yes. Pre and including the president yeah. that day. So here he is, and, and I'm actually going to bring 34, up. 34, 34 years old. 34 year old pitcher. He's a 34 year old pitcher. And then he flies home, he flies home for, the, for the Brownies event to Chicago or to, to the, yes, is that right? You were in Chicago. Yes. To the Chicago area. Uh, because he's that devoted to family. That's what that's what you're telling us. That's what I'm telling you. That's exactly correct. And he was always disappointed that the speech became known for those two words because he said he had other two words that he thought were more important, which was public interest. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, so... Uh, but he did do that, right? Part of, your, part of your message echoes something he did. He did... He sort of freed up... Um, uh, sort of uh, some spectrum that allowed for public interest television, right? Isn't that right? Uh, he, he did several uh, accomplishments. It's really kind of remarkable. In two years, the president said to him, how'd you get so much done? And I didn't get so much done. He uh, convinced Congress to adopt a law to um, uh, actually uh, launch uh, communication satellites, which right. is why we're able to have this uh, conversation right now, right. Uh, and cell phones, etc. He uh, similarly convinced uh, the relevant uh, authorities to require uh, VHS, which is another uh, spectrum, so that all televisions had to have more channels. UHF, uh, maybe. Perhaps UHF. UHS, sorry, yeah, yeah, UHS. Yeah, 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 you're you're right. quite right. You're that's quite right. right. And so it was the All Spectrums uh, Act. Yeah, and right. so, I remember that now, yeah. And, and, you know, some people say that the silicon chip was then given its boost because of that. So uh, who knew? But that's nothing we knew. So uh, his, his idea was more choice. And for someone who was viewed as a big critic of media, uh, most people didn't know he loved the media. You know, we had more televisions in our house than any other house that I knew. Almost every room had a television. And he, in his office, he had one with three monitors so he could simultaneously watch the three leading networks. At the time, there really were two and a half uh, national networks in the United States. Um, and it's because he believed that this could be the tool of democracy, cool. bring knowledge bring the arts, bring discussion, bring debate. But it was mostly Westerns and people killing each other. So uh, anyway, uh, that's the public person. But right. the private person was uh, you, yeah. was very, very uh, uh, much someone who believed that um, every human being had something special in them. My dad <laughs> would mentor uh, anybody that he met in the elevator, Ooh. in the taxi, he would get into a conversation and what do you want to do and how can I help you? He was just that kind of person. Yeah. And with my mother, the two of them created a household in which the daughters, three daughters, were constantly being asked, what did we think of the issues of the day? Mm. What did we think of what they were doing? How could we do something that would make the world better? Mm. And so, you know, by the time I get to law school, uh, my law school roommate says to me, you seem to think you have a right to comment on the issues of the day. Well, of course I thought I did. I had been trained to do that um, and also trained to believe that I had an obligation to make the world better. So um, 
and uh, dad was uh, a great um, uh, emotional intelligence person. He could read situations very well, but as great as he was, he wasn't as good as my mother. My mother was the master, the master. And so, you know, until their very last days, I would be calling them for advice, how to navigate difficult situations. Um, and, uh, you know, I never really wanted to be a dean, um, but uh, dad said, well, why wouldn't you? You could make a difference. Of course. So that's, that's important. So it, it's, it's, it's a little more intimate, but if you're, if you're willing to, to talk about it to the extent that you are, um, did you consult with your parents, even as a kind of fully fledged adult, already a professor, already successful, already celebrated, already established, did you consult with them about um, challenges at work and, um, and professional choices and opportunities? Was that something that you would share with them? Absolutely. And they were my best advisors on the big decisions and even on these navigate a difficult situation, how to communicate with someone who really needed to retire, um, <laughs> didn't want to. Wow. Um, wow. Really, you know, really are, oh, concrete yeah. stuff oh, yeah. like that. Wow. Oh, yeah. Concrete stuff. You yeah. know, thank you for sharing that. I do find over and over again with people who've achieved sort of extraordinary levels of excellence um, and, and accomplishment, as you have, that their, that their parents, uh, often one, sometimes both, are, are still very much in their lives. Um, through if many you're lucky. adult phases, right? If you're lucky, if you're lucky, and I, I would say I've never had better teachers or even as good teachers or advisors or interlocutors. And, um, you know, dad gave me two pieces of advice when I did become dean that were the best advice. And one was never to be driven by my inbox, to always have my own plan of what I wanted to do. Um, and secondly, was never make a tough decision without talking it over with someone, which usually meant one or both of them. So cool. uh, they were great pieces of advice, um, constantly. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, and constantly. And my mother's uh, advice included run to someone who's in trouble. Don't run away. Great. So I think that what you're saying is true, and it's very poignant for me, not only because I've recently lost them, but of course, I still can think about them. Um, but because last night, I happened to watch the screening of a film that I participated in that's about uh, kids in the opposite situation who are incarcerated, who are in trouble in the law. And it followed these eight kids and most of their parents were involved in the law, in, in the criminal system and also the drug trade and so forth. And nobody liked that in their corner. Nobody liked that saying that they could do important things. Nobody liked that guiding them. Um, and it, it's a poignant because uh, it was made by people very involved in an entity called Boys Town which uh, offers a, you know, kids in that circumstance the chance to live with a family and, and maybe finish high school. Um, and it, so it followed these kids and several of them made it, but several did not. And I'm sitting there thinking, how would you survive? There, if but you for the grace of God. Yes, absolutely right. Absolutely right. 
Ding, 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 ding. That is not my voice. That's an actual bell that just happened to come up here. Now we're going to do what we like to do on this podcast, which is called the speed round. You do not have to answer any of these questions, but it's a quick speed round. Are you ready? Yes. Are you vegetarian? I am. I'm not going to ask you why. Do you eat, are you vegetarian or pescatarian? Well, I do eat fish, but it's, if it's kosher fish, yeah. Herring with cream sauce or without cream sauce? <laughs> No cream sauce, wine. That is incorrect. You prefer with cream sauce. Bagels or <laughs> bagels or bialis, Martha Minow. Bagels or bialis. Bagels. Cream cheese with or without chives. No chives. Okay, legitimate, legitimate answer. Not a New York answer, but legitimate Chicago answer. We'll say. <laughs> yeah. Rugelach or babka. Oh, that's a tough one. What are you going to do? Honest, honest, yep. Honestly, rugelach. That is the correct answer. You are correct. <laughs> Cinnamon rugelach or chocolate rugelach. <laughs> Chocolate. <laughs> that is false. It is, not, it is not your preference. Your preference is cinnamon rugula. Okay. All right. A little more serious, but still in the moment of levity. Scale of one to 10, one being very bearish or negative, and 10 being very bullish or very positive. One to 10, United States of America. Five. Joe Biden's presidency. Four. Kamala Harris's vice presidency. Three. The European Union. Six. Which three countries outside the United States have you visited most recently? Um, or just one of them? Uh, <laughs> Not a memory test. Uh, England, uh, Poland, and Argentina. And which country are you most longing to visit? Um, Canada, because I'm going soon. <laughs> okay. Okay. Good. Is there any music that you love that you might that be embarrassed to admit that you love quite as much as you love it? Uh, no embarrassment. Okay. I'm a, I'm a total Bach fan. Bach. Uh, yeah. An intellectual Bach. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay here we are. All right. Naming names, if you can. This is a positive question. It's a nice question. Naming names, if you can. Are there any individuals you hope? will run for president or high office in the next 10 or 20 years. Can you, from your vantage point, turn our audience onto anyone you think is special, whether or not he or she has even admitted to you or to themselves that they want to run for office? Anyone you hope will, naming names if you can, and if not, that's fine. Well, it's hopeful to imagine that we will still have elections um, in that period of time, and it will still be a country that can actually elect people of talent and quality. And wow. I will turn my head to that, so maybe I should reduce my uh, assessment of the United States. I'm really worried. I think that the upcoming presidential election is a turning point. It's like, uh, in many ways, it's like the election of 1800 or the election of 1860 mm. in the United States. You know, it's a referendum on the process as mm. much as any of the people. And you're you're imagining it. You're imagining a, a a contest between Trump and Biden. I'm guessing when you say this. If, if it were today, that's what we would get. That's sort of, but sitting as we are here today, when this interview is being recorded, not published, yeah. Trump is leading in the primary polls, in the Republican right. primary, but he has certainly not won any, there's been no primary. So right. you're sort of casting your mind forward, anticipating he predicting. wins handily. You're predicting he wins handily. And it's a contest between Trump and Biden, and that's a referendum, in your opinion, yes. on the whole thing. The whole thing. The okay. whole thing. Because one candidate... Um, uh, tried to tear down the entire process 
and doesn't believe in it and is out entirely for his own self-gain and doesn't even have any embarrassment about that. Um, to state the obvious, you mean Donald Trump. I do mean Donald Trump, right. and absolutely. Um, and the other is um, has probably done better than many progressives would want to admit, but he's not in entering the, the prime of his life. Um, so it, it's a... Uh, so you think he's a pretty good president, Joe Biden, but you think he's at a kind of risk of perceived frailty or perhaps actual frailty? Yes. Yeah. Yes, all of that. I do share, yes. I do share that reservation, I admit. Yes, he does seem I to do. be becoming... Uh, more and more frail rapidly in my personal observation. I don't know of any evidence of that apart from what I see. You know, I, I talk to people who work with him who say he's all in, he's uh, with it, he, you know, uh, and in conversations, he's fine. But, you know, there, there's, a, there's an issue. There's a reason that 77% of Americans think he's too old to run. Um, you know, and Donald Trump is not much younger. No. Um, so, so anyway, yes, I am worried about the whole thing. Um, so actual names of people. Um, well, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to offer hope for yeah. the future and to give you, by the way, this is a speed round question. You've answered it with greater faith and greater fidelity than it deserves. But it's, but should you, should you, I, we're in the business of identifying talent, right? So should, yes. should, should it occur to you, we'll continue with the conversation now to other topics, but it should it occur to you to say, you know what, this former student of mine or this person who's now, uh, somewhere ought to do it. Uh, we'll welcome that information. So let's talk about leadership. A lot of what we talk about in this podcast is different sort of forms of leadership, styles of leadership, and we try to get as much as possible to the concrete nitty gritty. You've had a lot of responsibilities in your life, and then you became the dean of the Harvard Law School in 2009, and you stayed in that role for, I think, eight uh, academic years. So first of all, for those of us who are not law school people, and um, most of us will not be, can you just characterize the, the mechanics of that role? It's not quite the same as being a CEO, for example, right? How is a dean chosen? How are decisions made? What is the role of the faculty at the Harvard Law School or typically in law schools in conjunction with the dean in making decisions that are important? Can you just give, it, give us a precy of that sure. that might set the style for discussion of your learnings as a leader? So, so uh, maybe not all academic institutions are the same, but at, uh, at Harvard, uh, the deans are fairly autonomous in terms of being responsible for the budget, being responsible for hiring, being responsible for the operations, as it were. So maybe not CFO, but maybe C, maybe, maybe not CEO, but maybe CFO. I mean, so... <laughs> Okay. Uh, making sure that, you know, raised enough money, uh, managed uh, the floods when we had them in the library and the mm -hmm. snows and all of that. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, academic institutions tend to be more uh, collectively organized than uh, for-profit and even than many nonprofits. So other decisions like what faculty members to hire, whether to change the curriculum, uh, would require faculty participation and sometimes a vote. Um, mm. So in that sense, a lot of negotiation, a lot of working with other people, a lot of collaboration. Um, but uh, I would say the on the operations side of the school, um, most faculty have no knowledge of what's going on. And the staff um, 
you know, so it's a faculty of about 125, and it's a staff of about 200, and then a student body of about 1,800. So it's being responsible for a lot of people um, and their well-being. Uh, so on that point, do you, do you have an opinion as to whether deans of institu academic institutions are chosen the right way? Is it... Are we living in the best of all possible worlds? They're often formal faculty members like you, right? Is that, is that the best way to do it? Or should there be a kind of administrator class who are hired to do those kinds of things? Or, or does that exist and the proper person on top of that infrastructure is in fact a former faculty member? Do you have any view on that? Or, is it, or do yeah. you think that that ship has sailed and it's not use, useful to discuss? What's your, what's your broad opinion? You know, many uh, professional organizations are exploring the hiring of a, of a professional manager rather than someone with expertise in the subject matter. I think that's a tough thing to do in an academic environment because to be uh, the person in charge and not be respected as an intellectual leader is tough when the business is intellectual. Um, so there are law schools that have gone outside, as it were, and hired partners of law firms or judges. And it may work, but I know one, you know, that hired a very good person but said he could not make decisions about hiring faculty. And that's kind of a big part of the job. So Is um, that the most important part of the job? Well, it's the most forward-looking. It shapes the intellectual life for the next generation. For, and for you, decades sometimes, for right? For decades, decades, for decades. You're making That's a call. Right. You're making a bet. Okay. That's right. So at least, some right. Part of the, at least some part of the remit really should remain within the faculty leadership, even, a, even a, a, as a dean or in some other format. Is, is at least I, a, I do think so. Uh, now, I think that the tougher question that's really behind your question, the method of selection is less of a challenge than how to recruit people to be even in the running who have the range of talents and appetites and experiences. Because, you know, not to put it too bluntly, but why not? Um, the academic life, tenured professor life, is shielded from totally. and uh, most of the kinds totally. of challenges and decisions that uh, someone has to make. Um, and uh, indeed can lead to a warping of the human personality. Um, to be always uh, given the first word, the last word in the classroom is not the best preparation for collaborative discussions. Uh, to be uh, someone who's only in charge of their own work, uh, legal academics tend to work alone and write uh, by themselves is not the best way to learn how to be uh, in a team that's making decisions when there's a live shooter, for example, or other oh, kinds oh, of right. very, okay. yeah, yeah, which, you know, we, we had it all. We had the bomb threats, the marathon bomber. We had, we had everything. Um, uh, we didn't have a pandemic, but we had three other kinds of uh, health, health uh, scares. So, it, it's like being the mayor of a small town, um, if you've only been teaching your classes and writing your scholarship, you may not be prepared for the kinds of challenges. Were you given any um, sort of management training or did you seek it out? As, so does it, is it part of the program of hiring a new dean? Do they say, hey, look, go to the Harvard you know, Kennedy School for two weeks of management training or the Harvard Business School for two weeks of management training? Or, or was there a... Is there a formal process that exists or should exist or that you concocted, you crafted for yourself informally to 
just get better than you might otherwise get just through experience alone? Or is it there, something you could only do by sitting in the, the chair? There should be, and it's now routine, which it was not when I was dean, to have a coach. Um, a and what coach, I did, the leadership coach. Well, yes. So what I did, what I did, because I'm an academic, I just got a bunch of books and articles about management uh -huh. leadership. I read them all, uh -huh. and unfortunately, I concluded that most were irrelevant because totally irrelevant. They seem to fall into three categories. They describe the leader as a cowboy the leader as a beekeeper, which came from the software industry, right. you know, uh, or the leader as a shepherd. Um, oh, and see. all of those were interesting, but interestingly, none of them imagined that you were leading human beings. Oh, they were all leading non-humans, <laughs> which was not going to be yeah, the best. These books are sort of categorically awful, aren't they? Yeah. Um, yeah. They really are. And they're written, so, so they're written being, for a very kind of like, Lowest common denominator, you know, kind of thing. Yes. And the, so my the best preparation. Well, you, you too can be a billionaire by beekeeping. That's kind of the big. Yeah, exactly. That's the yeah, yeah. Exactly, and be yeah. confident and wear wear uh, chaps or whatever. But I, I was lucky. I, I was lucky because I um, I had done a lot of work in nonprofit organizations. I had chaired I boards. I had worked in in various settings, and so that for me was you know my my preparation, and also frankly. Uh, not just my family as advisors, but doing things collaboratively with my family. Is there anything that you wish now that first year Dean Minow had understood as well as eighth year Dean Minow? Is there anything that um, in particular that uh, you, you, you wish you'd known sooner um, from the job? Eight years of being at the, at the head of that kind of organization would give you a great deal of experience, a great deal of insight. Is there anything that you wish you'd learn faster or sooner that you're willing to share? Well, I, I'm, I'm sure there are many, many, many things. Um, one was um, uh, that, I mean, that particular year, that first year, I had a child still at home and I was very worried about not being present enough. Um, and Sounds like your father. Yes, you know, very true, very true. And I should have just relaxed. It would be okay. Um, okay. Uh, I, I think probably um, one of the big lessons that I learned was um, to really resist the temptation to speak early in a conversation um, and to listen more. I learned that, but it took a little while. You know, I, you know, I was the smart kid. I always, you know, jump in and say what I thought. Um, and it, when you're a leader, if you do that, it closes off the conversation and you don't hear things that you really need to hear. That's very good. Um, did becoming Dean, without naming names, did become Dean, did becoming Dean deleteriously affect any of your good relationships that you'd had when you were a peer in the faculty or when you were in a different part of your life? Did it, did the change in status automatically have a negative impact that you can recall and characterize without, without revealing things you don't want to reveal? You know, several people said to me, say goodbye to friendships on the faculty while you're mm. dean. And that would have been very painful for me since many of my close friends are on the faculty. But um, for um, for many, many conversations, I had to ask myself, is this person speaking to me as me or because of my role? 
uh, and often it'd be obvious it was because of my role. Um, and uh, wanting something, I mean, seeing sides of people that you don't really want to see. Um, but also, um, can, you give, can you give an example without without revealing intimate details? Just just at a high enough level that it puts some meat on the bones for us, because I'm, I I do want I do want this podcast to be a place where people can really hear the nitty gritty of stuff without revealing anything that's confidential. Sure, sure. Um, no. It, it, it is remarkable how it almost doesn't matter who is in the role. Um, maybe there's a psychological explanation. Um, the many For some people, uh, talking to the person who's in charge means that they're talking to their image of people past, their parents, who knows what. Um, but you see, unfortunately, some people who are very needy and just want, 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 and that's never enough. And, um, and and then once you have once you have the the hand on the feeding trough, yeah, because you're the dean. Suddenly that that desire or that gene is activated, and you get you receive it. You receive it. So that's uh -huh. one kind of issue. Uh, another another is um, you know people who um, just would not uh, contribute would not join in the larger enterprise in ways that are necessary. I don't uh, want to be on the committee. I don't want to review the fact. I don't want to interview the person. I don't want to do that. Okay. No, and just no. And so, and what tools do you have? And, you know, it's not that hierarchical an organization. So uh, guilt was my major tool. Guilt, oh, okay. Guilt. Is Jewish? Yeah. I don't know. Is she Jewish? Okay, so... Uh, is there, this is just an invitation for you to share anything you're particularly proud of in terms of your accomplishments while you were in. You had many, but is there anything that you think in hindsight, you say, you know what, that was a really good one, uh, or more than one if you wish, but you can choose one just as an exemplar. Well, the, the, the large context is it was just after the 2008 financial uh, disaster, and we had made commitments to build a building and with loans uh, and just lost all the money that had been raised. Uh, to do that. So in that context, I am uh, glad and proud that we built the building and it's great and dynamic and has changed uh, a lot of the opportunities at the school. But more importantly, that um, we actually grew the public service uh, features of the school, the clinics, um, even though we tightened our belt and had to cut a lot of other things. Um, <laughs> Uh, and hired a lot of people and diversified the faculty and the staff and, uh, and the student body, um, both in terms of, of race and uh, background and even political point of view. Those are things that I cared a lot about. Um, I think that probably, it, again, in the context of this kind of financial crisis, we did, uh, we, we came up with a better planning system. Uh, to be able to prepare for the future and uh, strengthened the capacities to deal with it. But I felt strongly um, we have to look at what are our assets, you know, um, and our assets were human. And so how could we amplify the human qualities, the things that we could do without money? Isn't um, it interesting that, the, that, that, that in a life well lived, you know, just sort of <laughs> the balance, balancing the balance sheet, and making the systems go can often be the most enduring accomplishment. I think it's, I think it's less spectacular than some of the accomplishments that other people regard, uh, you know, among their heroes. But it is certainly among those who know the Hamavin Yavin. It is certainly among the most admirable. Um, 
it turns out I, I do like institutions. I do believe okay. in them. Uh, and, and academic institutions like Harvard are older than the country. Um, and having that sense of history and what can we do to endure and to create a stability uh, so that people can take risks and people can uh, engage in the foraging for the future. Um, uh, and yes, so caring about how it, uh, how the stability can continue during tough times, that, that matters. That's very interesting. So it's, 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 it's consonant with your anxiety that you're expressing about today, that there needs to be a set of things on which we can rely during a turbulent time. And institutions uh, feature strongly on that list. If I hear you well, do I hear you well? Yes, that is correct. That is correct. And, you know, Hannah Pitkin, great political philosopher, said that we create institutions to accomplish human goals, and then the institutions take on their own lives and try to fulfill their own goals. So that's the caution. That's the caution to always have foremost in mind. Is there something that you did not do? Is, was there a miss in your leadership? Was there, a, was there a, I don't mean a failure, but was something when you look back and you say, you know, I could have done X, I could have done Y. Is there something that irks you that you would be willing to share? Or is the list eh, pretty good? Uh, either answer is okay. <laughs> um, You're also allowed there, not to answer. <laughs> there, there are so many things that I hoped that we could do that we didn't, but um, I, I, I stepped down, you know, uh, voluntarily and over protestations. People wanted me to stay longer because uh, I felt like I had done what I, you know, longer than I had actually intended to stay. Um, and I had scholarship that I wanted to do, and it's hard to do that while you're yeah. running an organization. Um, but the the biggest loss was the freedom to speak, um, uh, because when you're at the head of an institution, at least this kind of institution, you don't speak just as yourself; you speak as the leader of the institution. And I wanted to be able to speak out. To, you know, Donald Trump had been elected. Um, so, uh, it's very if interesting anything, to say that. My follow-up question was actually that I, I, you sort of almost read my mind because you know, your father, let's juxtapose the two questions, your father used that very short tenure, maybe even accidentally, as a bully yeah. pulpit, right, in the FCC chairmanship. And I don't think you did. I don't think you were um, an extraordinary, maybe I have misread yeah. the history, but I do not think of Martha Minow's tenure as dean of Harvard Law School as one of um, vocalizing, uh, wading into topics of American or national interest with great ferocity or volume. Um, if, I'm wrong, if I'm wrong, if I'm no, wrong, I should correct that. But but if 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 I'm right, was that a choice? Was that an accident? Was that your philosophy about what it means to be a leader of a consensus organization like a faculty? Where does that come from and what, are, what choice does that reflect accidentally or otherwise? Uh, that was a condition of the job. So I was appointed oh, by the president and told, you know, she knew that I had an active, uh, you know, public uh, platform kind of voice and wrote op-eds and so forth and said, you can't do that while you're dean unless it's in service of the institution. That was the deal. Um, that was explicit. That was the deal. That was the deal. So, wow. 
but I I chafed against it and I uh, in, and I uh, navigated in a couple of ways. One, I chose uh, with this idea that we could use the assets we had even without spending a lot of money. I chose to create an active set of um, lectures and conferences on topics uh, to be an agenda center. So, for example, you know, we talked earlier about the territories in the United States, Puerto Rico, uh, other territories that where people don't have full citizenship. We held a conference on what are called the insular cases when the Supreme Court of the United States approved this uh, non-full citizen status. Um, and Harvard Law School had never done anything like that. We held a conference. Um, it was broadcast. I know that uh, for people in Puerto Rico, it was very important uh, and listened to, um, and it published a book about that. Mm-hmm. And I recruited faculty members who then wrote scholarship about it. So I did that on four or five topics that I just felt, That's you know, it. we should amplify it. Um, and I did speak out. I spoke out myself personally on access to justice and even on criticizing uh, Donald Trump. Um, and, and to the extent that he was attacking the rule of law. Um, and, um, and calling a judge a so-called judge, uh, you know, pre- prelude of later behavior. Um, and that I justified uh, to our president by saying, this is defending the, the institution of the Harvard Law School, because if those institutions, those courts, the respect for the rule of law goes, then we go. Hmm. Hmm. Well, Sounds to me like you didn't get much pushback from the president of the university. Um, and um, you were also on to this topic very early. It sounds to me like you identified this so-called judge type of remark as a harbinger of things to come and uh, as an assault on the profession and therefore also on the institution that generates the top of the profession. Well, not to get too dire about it, but if you look at the warning signs that led to Nazi Germany, um, we're far down the list. You and think that is- the progression, so from 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 zero, time zero to time Nazi, there's a there's a series of events, and you think yes. we're somewhere further along that than most, yes. that most most people would appreciate. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Let's, let's and- spend a second amplifying that. That sounds extremely important. Well, it, it, and it's not just the U.S., right? You can look at um, what's happened in Poland, what's happened in Hungary. Um, you know, it is um, uh, the big change, but it, again, prelude with the Weimar Republic, uh, and then subsequently, to have um, a tyrant elected, is not, it's not the first time that this has happened. And that's what's happening in several countries uh, where people... Uh, who are uh, elected by the rule of law, um, but disrespect the rule of law, try to take over and undermine the existing institutions and prevent accountability, prevent the operation of the courts in particular, uh, prevent, um, though, uh, you know, the basic rules of ethics by having a kleptocracy um, shut down or... uh, produce uh, disrespect for the all the checks and balances, whether it's the journalism, uh, civil society. So let's um, talk about, let's, let's just talk about this for another second, because it sounds like it's extraordinarily top of mind for you as well, and it must be for a lot of people. Uh, you're talking about Donald Trump. Um, 
What do you think his agenda is? Um, I swore some years ago not to try to spend too much time really trying to figure out what's inside of his mind. And, and he is a symptom now of a larger problem. Uh, he didn't create the Trumpism. Um, but what is his agenda? It's all what it's always been. It's to help himself. Some of the other people you're referencing in, as historical figures or contemporary figures have some kind of easily discernible or had some kind of easily identifiable vision including some extremely nefarious visions, but some vision for what the world ought to look like. Can you identify one when you think about Donald Trump? No, I really can't. I, again, I, I think he's a small man with small <laughs> aspirations other than self-aggrandizement. Uh, but it's sort of a bestial response, a, a kind of mammalian, reptilian behavior that happens to be in service of him but it's very destructive along the way. And, and it disregards anything outside of himself, including his family, but uh, certainly his country. Um, and uh, yes, and so, you know, how can he say things that are totally inconsistent minute to minute? It doesn't matter minute to minute. There's no narrative. It's about, it's about himself. So, but, but the people who support him, the people who uh, fund him, uh, what is their vision? You know, the, the, it's such a mashup of uh, people who want to roll back the administrative state um, and regulation uh, on the one hand, and then people who have genuine uh, sense that life has passed them by uh, with a globalized economy that has uh, eliminated uh, uh, a pathway to economic stability for their own families. So let's invite and, you to make, make this case a little bit more specifically. So let us try, let us try to separate two things and then to analyze Donald Trump's presidency in light of that separation. The first is what happened on January 6th and thereafter, the denial of the, the very clearly, obviously true election results that he continues to lie about brazenly. Um, say, set that aside, because that's a very recent phenomenon in his presidency, right? It was the end of the presidency. Well, the election the results, but also the orderly passage of fine, power. Fine, fine. But that was the end. That was the end. Yeah. The second being the kind of constant vulgarities, constant um, behavior. Um, Appeal to neo-Nazis neo and hatred. Okay, okay, fine. What and that may be your answer. The question I want to get to is, what about his presidency vis-a-vis -vis the policies that he pursued stands out to you as particularly unique to him and vile? If you can separate those things from his behavior, which was often vile, is often vile, and his, in the last sort of 30 days of being in the office for 20 days, what is it that you can say about the policy that stands out to you, the actions during his presidency that stands out to you is vile and unique to him? No, he, I don't think he has a policy bone in his body, but he uh -huh. appointed uh -huh. people who, you know, rolled back environmental protection. Uh, he, this will be with us for decades if we still have the planet. Um, but more importantly, there's a continuum 
of the personal behavior to the policy, uh, and it, it comes together on immigration. So when he said vile, vile things about Muslims, about immigrants, uh, throughout his candidacy and then his presidency, and then produced an immigration policy that picked out countries that were majority Muslim, um, this was a way of justifying fears and hatreds um, and that led concretely to the separation of parents and children, many of whom are still not reunited. The, the policies, if you want to call it, they didn't keep track of the names. There are hundreds of kids who still have not been returned to their families um, and because they're separated at the border. Uh, with the theory that that would then deter uh, new uh, rounds of immigrants from coming if they knew something that cruel was going to happen to them. Um, and, you know, is that a policy? I guess it's a policy. It's also a combination of ineptness mm. and, and, again, hatred uh, and willing, willingness to, to instrumentalize uh, people who are traveling to avoid something terrible in their own lives um, to feed the fears of people in our, our country um, for the, you know, interest of a political leader. So uh, do I don't know, think, is that policy or what is that? Well, no, it's, it's an interesting question. I, I, I struggle with this a lot. I, um, and I talk about this question a lot with um, friends. I do think Donald Trump is the most dangerous person in the United States. Um, full stop. And at the same time, he's so bad that people on the left are perfectly happy to consider radioactive anything that he imagined, touched, or said, or did. And so I, I try to study, because you, 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 you put something forward that was, that was useful and important, I think. You said, the people who fund Trump, and there are many, and there are many different types, and they cover a lot of different bases. What are they interested in? Yeah. Are they animal spirits business people? Are they anti-immigrant thugs? Are they people who don't like the Bidens? Uh, there's going to be a lot of a lot of different groups. Um, and uh, I asked that question to give you a platform answer, but also just to, out of curiosity, I. I wonder what it is that he actually did as president that was very bad. And I've heard a few different answers. Um, I've heard a few different answers. But the answers quickly do turn into some, some version of the continuum between his vile personality and the policy. And I do, I do think what that reveals is that it's hard to separate the two. And it may not be a useful question to separate the two, but it is, it is instructive, I think, and it is important because... Um, I do not want to contemplate another Trump presidency. I think it's a <clears throat> it's a very uh, be very unwelcome outcome for a lot of reasons well, because he's so dangerous course. structurally, but not and because of policy because he's dangerous structurally. That's that's that's, that's, that's my worry. You. My worry is not that he's going to undo environmental policy the more than George W. Bush did. Are there a lot of Republicans would do that? You're allowed to say that's a yeah. vile thing to do. But we must see a difference between you would take George W. Bush over Donald Trump every day. I know you would. Of course, and, of 
course. And and so would I, even though George W. Bush was one was a colossally terrible president. Yeah. Um, Best thing that ever happened to him was the election of Donald Trump. You're right. I think. So, I, in fact, I think you actually. I think you're the person who taught me that phrase. I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, no, I, I agree with you, and I think that's a very important uh, enterprise right now is to. Um, identify the difference between, you know, this is normal policy disagreements versus this is existential, this is the end of um, our collective project. And, uh, you know, he, he, the he could be that bad. He really could be yeah, that bad. Yeah, he could be that bad. He could, could be, be that bad. bad. And the polarization, the, the hatred, the lack of common decency um, that is characterizing, unfortunately, more and more of daily life. Um, Yes. I don't worry uh, about that at all. I, I, I don't share your concern to the degree that you share it. Uh, you seem to suggest that you have it. I sh my concern that I share with you, that my concern that I share with you, is that he will do anything he has to do yes. to stay in power for as and long tear as down he everything. Can. And tear and, down everything. Yeah, and, and it doesn't matter what he believes in because he believes in nothing. Correct. Um, that is correct. And, and so, you know, if he, if he has to become a trans LGBTQ liberal in order to stay in power, he will do it. I just don't, I just think he'll do anything he's got to do to keep his ego fed. Um, and you know, I agree. if, if, I if agree. it unleashes this hatred, it unleashes that hatred. If it reflects this hatred, it reflects that hatred. I just, I worry less about the underlying antipathy than I think you do to, well, to, listen, uh, to, you, to listen to you. So, so I guess I, I worry that here I am in the comfort of Massachusetts in the liberal community of Cambridge. And uh, if anyone's insulated, I'm insulated. And yet I have students who now face harassment on the street and they didn't before. Um, that, so that it, it, it has changed our lives. All right, here. so here, here's a question. Do you think that he's gonna go to jail, Donald Trump will go to jail on any of the four sets of charges that are now that now have been leveled at him 91 charges 91 in okay, four, four lawsuits four different, four different indictments right four, four different indictments, indictments. Yeah. Yep. yeah and if so which ones i don't think before the election so then so then if he's elected then he pardons himself federally and then just left with georgia yeah and then we have a standoff between the, the, the White House Secret Service and the Georgia State Marshals. This is why it's the most important election uh, in in long, long time. Okay. It's about the viability of the whole institution. Just for the record, who will be president in 2025? Martha Minow. I don't know. Okay. And do you think that Joe Biden should not re-nominate himself or allow himself to be re-nominated? You know, I don't spend a lot of time revisiting things that have already happened. He's already um, uh, declared and that has stymied other uh, campaigns. So, um, you know, it's not, I too late. Do... it's not too late. It's not too late. It, it is too late for a third party candidate that could make it even more difficult okay. for him do to you, run. Do you think that um, Kamala Harris is so bad? And this is, this is my question. I'm not putting words in your mouth. You can recharacterize my question. You can do whatever you want with my question, including reject it wholesale. Do you think that Kamala Harris is so bad that she will, due to Joe Biden's apparent age and frailty, apparent age and frailty, she will turn away voters who might otherwise vote for the Democratic ticket? 
So it's for me, the concern is not whether she is bad or good or qualified or not qualified. It's whether she's perceived. And I think she is perceived um, as not a plus and as a negative. And also there's enough racism and sexism out there. And you add all of that to, uh, and it might be enough to kill his, his reelection campaign. So it's not about her. It's about perceptions of her. So I, I worry about that. I do very much worry about that. Um, My last question for you is, what are you working on now and how can we find out more about it? <laughs> so I actually am working on uh, what are the preconditions uh, for a constitutional democracy, okay. um, which I think include not only the press, but also uh, education. Jeffersonian uh, education. Yes, and also, you know, freedom to start and maintain nonprofit and for-profit organizations. Uh, interesting studies of, uh, you know, society, civilizations over time indicate that those that thrive are the ones that allow that, and those that die don't allow it. Um, did, did you just say free market? I did, I did. Oh, wow. Are I you did. allowed to say that in Cambridge? Okay, wait. <laughs> Okay. Hey, I've come to. Well, I've come, something, there's something to that, right? There's, we're allowed to. There we're allowed is. To, to acknowledge that you're not the obvious spokesperson for that 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 opinion, right? That we're is a fair statement. That. Fair statement. And I uh, look. I'm not a huge fan of capitalism, but it's better than anything else that I have found. And I think that there has to be, you know, some redistribution following it. But in terms of innovation and job creation and value creation, it, you know, works pretty well, um, but also needs to be monitored. So that's what I think. But I also think that, you know, China, China's crisis right now has a lot to do with the government clamping down on the independence of business. Um, and there's so much uh, innovation there that could be unleashed. Um, so, the command yes. economy does not work. It is just too complex a system, and humans Correct. are best given the freedom and, and preserving the freedom to do what they must do. Yes, yes, but the uh, results should be distributed more fairly. That, that I do feel strongly about. But um, So I'm working on that. I'm working on... Um, Restorative justice, you mentioned, you know, I've been involved in um, Harvard's efforts to address our legacy of slavery um, and therefore other institutions in, in the United States uh, on those scores, but also, you know, reform of our criminal system. Uh, we are still the most incarcerated society in the history of the planet, and that is a, a huge loss of uh, human value, not to, uh, as well as, of course, just dollars. Um, and I also am working on, uh, just finished a short piece um, on dignity as a concept, um, which we don't agree on what it is and where it comes from. Um, I'm most uh, instructed by Frederick Douglass, the uh, runaway slave who became a great uh, abolitionist against slavery. And he said, dignity is uh, a relational idea that I have dignity to the extent that I act in a way that uh, in, invites you to treat me as someone with dignity and vice versa. And I, I, I like that. Anyway, I, I write about this as a, a way to talk about human rights uh, in societies that don't agree about much else, but agree that dignity matters, but they don't agree what dignity means. So I'm trying to identify what it could mean. Yeah. And these, these, uh, the piece on dignity, 
I imagine will be out sooner, but the piece on the preconditions of constitutional democracy, when do you predict in academic time that we might see this in the world? I will give a, a lecture about it in March. Okay, March uh, of 2024. Yes, and uh, hope to publish it uh, as, as an article, and we'll okay. see if anyone reads it. So perhaps perhaps after that, we'll be able to invite, invite you on again to see, or maybe after the election, we'll invite you on again uh, to see how your work in dignity, the ongoing prosecutions of the former president, your work in the preconditions of democracy, and your prognostications are panning out. Maybe that'll be the next time we'll reconvene here on the podcast. It would be a delight and an honor. Thank you. Thank you very much to Martha Minow, a sensational guest, and a delight and a treat to invite you and host you and to hear this wide-ranging set of opinions and experiences and wisdoms. This has been an episode of Finally. Thank you for listening.